Hi, this is Oliver from Statement Radio. Hope you're well and are enjoying a good week. Welcome to Statement Radio and welcome to episode 6 of our podcast series, which provides you with a personal insight into the worlds of artists, curators and collectors who are lighting up contemporary art and culture. In today's episode, we share some highlights of our first ever live online event, The Great Disorder. The Great Disorder was a private view of the difference. Firstly, artists Nicholas Russell and Cyrus Hill shared an exclusive insight into the new works they've created during the pandemic. Then, we engaged in live discussions with an author, a professor of history, a senior researcher of infectious diseases, and a frontline ambulance worker to obtain some broader perspectives of COVID-19. During our conversations, we discussed whether there are lessons we can learn from historical pandemics, we explored the communication problems between the sciences, media, and the general public, and discovered some powerful stories from the front line during lockdown in the UK. We hope you enjoy these highlights that we've put together for you, and without further ado, let's jump into it. How has the pandemic broadened your perspective or has it kind of confined you or what's the general experience been like? Well, I think uh, as artists, we can be quite self-indulgent. Of course, it's a way that we see the world and uh, a reflection of that. That's the very reason we make art. Um, but I think with the pandemic, I've seen such a confusion of signs. And that's really why I wanted to involve other experts and academics to broaden our points of view, but to have their input and really help us uh, shape a wider picture of what's happening. Yeah, I mean, that post-truth sense has come up a lot in our discussions, hasn't it? In terms of people not knowing what sources of information they can trust. And as we'll hear later on, that's true at all kind of levels, isn't it? Even at academic level, there's this kind of confusion of what can you trust, what can you not trust? that came up in our discussions that we've had with our panel members the last few days one of the questions you kept putting forward nick was about conspiracy theories why why were you compelled to ask these various academics and professionals about the conspiracies i'm really interested in fictions and narrative and storytelling the if you think about it the internet is like a schizophrenic dream because you've got all these (laughs) channels of information and these these threads of information and you can kind of conjoin and tie it up in whichever Mm. way to and create your own story and narrative what i wanted to do in my my paintings uh, is sort to to, uh reflect the confusing internet babble i i was really interested to learn if experts and academics uh, were privy to to the same noise you know if they'd avoided it or if it had avoided them you know, yeah, it's it's been interesting, hasn't it? Because um, I don't want to give too much away before we get to chat to some of these people, but a lot of the academics' response in terms of where, where can they trust information was scientific academic papers, which are kind of, they're only really accessible to other academics. And then you have this breakdown in communication and maybe it's through that communication breakdown a lot of these, your imagine, imagination kind of fills in the gaps. I think as well that's on that point. I mean that that's why I wanted um, Ashley to, to to work on those pieces with me. Um, mm-hmm. He's a, he's a fiction writer, so uh, the idea was to have the two of us um, defacing each other's work, work over the top of mm-hmm. uh, each other's kind of mad ramblings, and and then that was a way to in, encapsulate the the noise of those 
conspiracy theories that are jostling for our attention. So when I first saw Cyrus's work, it was like being punched in the face <laughs> with um, real technical ability and real kind of emotional clout and just all the things that I, I, I love in art. Um, since we met in 2018, we've shown his work in New York and across London and very quickly he's built this collector base, art historians, Hollywood actors, the list goes on. <laughs> Don't forget uh, when you're watching the video, again, if you minimize the stream, you can use the chat button on our website if you have any questions about what you're about to see. So um, yeah, let's hit play. My works depict scenes of realism based on a surrealist echo of the subconscious state, a visual and thematic juxtaposition of light and dark. Inspired by 17th century Baroque painters, I have studied their techniques. Yeah, sorry, I was rambling <laughs> for quite some time. It's not rambling at all. I think we, we could do a week's worth of content diving into that. Um, I love the way that you're so honest, you know, your own experiences. I think that's... Um, same with Nick as well. It's one of the things I admire about you both. It's just, this is what it is. So before we move on to the, the kind of panel stuff, I just want to give a, a quick note of thanks to a couple of organisations that have been supporting us, not only with this event, but with, with other activities that have been involved with. The first is Posca Pens, uh, which Nick has already mentioned in his video. These have been a really integral part of his practice during the pandemic. I feel, Nick, you've really been able to let loose on those canvases for the, for the yeah. reasons you mentioned in the, in the video there. And um, I, I can kind of personally recommend it as well, because especially during this strange lockdown time, um, having a creative outlet is really important. So um, if you're not familiar, if you're watching this, you're not familiar with Posca, uh, go to their website. They've got a really great range of all sorts of different tip sizes and colors and stuff. So um, if you feel like you need a, a creative outlet through this time, then uh, that will definitely help you there. Um, secondly, I'd like to thank our charity partner, Perspective Project. As we've been talking about already in this discussion and in recent articles that we've been publishing, mental health is still very much a crisis. And if anything, it's been further kind of, uh, the, the problem's been kind of further catalyzed through the pandemic, through all the isolation and the kind of cabin fever that uh, people are, are feeling. So the really nice thing about the work of Perspective Project is that they use art and creativity as a way for people to open up about their mental health situation, particularly in the workplace. Um, I was just talking to the founder, Mark, this morning, who told me they've recently announced a partnership with law firm Clyde & Co to show work in their office and to open a conversation about mental health in the workplace. They're always looking out for more companies and partnerships who are committed to opening a workplace mental health dialogue. So, yeah, if you think, uh, if you're not familiar with Perspective Project and you feel maybe your company could benefit from using art as a way to to get uh, your, your team to kind of open up more, then uh, please make sure you go and, and check them out. The next guest we're going to talk to is... Uh, Chris Otter, who is Professor of History at the Ohio State University, working on the history of science, technology and medicine. The first thing I'd love to ask you is, is there anything we can learn from historical pandemics and outbreaks or is the world so different now that it's, it's a bit um, difficult? No, I actually think that there, are things, there are things historians can certainly learn. Um, they're not necessarily encouraging things um, that we learn. One thing we do um, we do learn is that responses to pandemics are never uh, governed purely or even primarily by by science uh, or by what would appear to be scientifically and medically rational at a given time. Uh, mm -hmm. We tend to find that politics and culture 
ideology usually gets in the way. Um, so actually a good example, we often seem to be talking about 1918. Um, maybe that's not the best pandemic to look at. For example, in 1832, cholera hit Europe for the first time. It's the first global uh, cholera pandemic. Well, actually, I think this might be the third pandemic, but still in 1832, the pandemic, when it first hit Britain, um, the, the response of, of the British to, to cholera, you might assume a, a logical response would be to quarantine people. Um, you might assume that this, this disease is being brought across the world by trade, which it was. Um, but that was not the response uh, of Britain at all. The, the response was to, to argue that the disease was actually caused by decomposing matter. It was miasmatic. It wasn't a germ. It wasn't being spread by person to person. And that quarantine was useless. Uh, of course, the uh -huh. reason, main reason for that was because quarantine interferes with trade itself. And so, in a sense, the idea of immobilizing during a pandemic, having a lockdown, which is pretty much unenforceable anyway in 1832, given the kind of apparatuses that the state had at its disposal. Um, but the idea of any kind of lockdown was, uh, you know, was fundamentally frowned upon. I'm being somewhat anachronistic there, but you can certainly thinking about the cholera pandemic and the response. Um, it's quite similar to today, actually. Uh. It's like trade, really, the economy has to take priority um, over public health. And in a sense, what we need is a model of public health that enables um, the economy to, throw, to flow freely. So, yeah, I mean, 1918, we certainly, there are certain things we can learn from 1918. There was a famous, um, uh, in September uh, 1918, the Liberty Loans Parade in, in, in Philadelphia, uh, in the U.S. Uh, this is just at the beginning of, of the second wave of the pandemic, the really nasty wave. They had this gigantic... Um, parades where people mingled and there was an immense spike in the cases that followed this. It was really was a case of um, going out in person and mingling and breathing on each other uh, was a disastrous thing. And this this has been used by by governors in the US to, to point to lockdown being useful. So we, we do get we get clues. We, we can certainly see a pattern here, but it, it's not a pattern that necessarily suggests that uh, we respond any more um, scientifically rationally to pandemics uh, than, we, than we did in the past. Although um, if you went back to the Black Death, you'd find some fairly, um, from our perspective, uh, bizarre forms of behavior. Mm. Um, so next up we have Dr. Stathis uh, Giotis, who is a senior researcher in infectious diseases from Imperial College London, and uh, is a lecturer in viro virology at the University of Essex. His work is focused on genetic factors that allow viruses to jump from animals to humans and cause disease. <laughs> so extremely relevant to the world that we live in now. Um, Cyrus, did you have a question for Stathis? Yeah, I think when we last spoke, we talked about the communication problems between the scientific world and media and politicians and the general public. Um, I just wanted to get your thoughts on that again for the stream. Yeah, I, I think uh, just to discuss a bit the miscommunication, I think uh, what happened with this pandemic is in the beginning of the pandemic, there was a sort of filtered and controlled flow of information uh, from scientists, from media, from politicians, from the government. And this was designed to sort of keep the public calm and still calm and sort of um, avoid panic, which was understandable. But as the situation was unfolding and there were more and more cases and deaths 
in the UK, the media were sending the wrong message. Um, and there was a wave of misinformation. There was a lot of false or uh, non-verified uh, information. And all of that sort of sent a very confusing message, in my opinion, to the public. Um, I don't know if you agree with that. And, and yes. <laughs> this, this was partly due to um, scientists not doing their job properly and not explaining uh, the scientific facts of the importance of a lockdown, why we should do this or that. Um, but in my opinion, this was mostly because the media did not allocate the right time um, to have scientists explain um, the situation. And the, the media in their attempt to have um, to make very catchy and attention-grabbing headlines actually, mm. uh, in some cases, misunderstood uh, the signs or the messages that the scientists were sending them. And on top of all of that, we had politicians who were trying to uh, hijack the narrative. Uh, we had fake news. Um, uh, we had conspiracy theories sweeping through the social media. All of that more and more confusing for the general audience. So um, Sophie uh, works for the UK Ambulance Service, so has been fully on the front line um, throughout this pandemic um, and we thought it would be really insightful to get her experiences. Hi! Hello! How are you Hello. I was just introducing you saying that um, you're part of the UK Ambulance Service so you've been really on the front line whilst all this craziness has, has been going on. Um, Nick, did you want to kick things off by asking Sophie a question? Yeah, absolutely. So it, it's the same one I was just um, asking, relaying with you there, Status. So, Sophie, what I wanted to kick off with um, was uh, is really what was a key moment for you, uh, like a, a defining moment when you realised that this shit was real? Oh, 100%. Um there was a day, one shift um, on the ambulance where we, all ambulances across the trust, so not even just in Norwich, across the whole East of England Ambulance Service Trust, we had to um, give in our defibs and our ventilators to the local hospitals because they were that short on them with the amount of patients they had. So they had that many patients who were that sort of level of poorly that we, as an ambulance, had to not have them really important tools so the um, hospital could have it. That was a big scare of it. When we spoke before, I was really interested when you were telling us a couple of different examples of some people calling 999 during this phase when they shouldn't, perhaps. Yeah. Um, predominantly, uh, perhaps through panic attacks. And then you gave another really stark example of somebody who was in the complete opposite situation who should have called 999 but felt anxious to do so in light of everything going on in the pan pandemic can you can you uh remind us of those two uh stories and also maybe give some general advice of when people should and shouldn't call yeah of course so with the panic attacks i wouldn't say they shouldn't call an ambulance because if they don't know what's going on and they're having shortness of breath and chest pains, they did the right thing calling 999. Yeah. It's just, in a sense, it is a bit of a waste of an ambulance just because of what the outcome was. Mm. Um, so a lot of people, just due to this whole sort of scary situation going on and feeling a lot more anxious than normal, 
and mm. people who don't have anxiety or anything are suddenly having panic attacks. Um, and because they're having these chest pains and these breathing problems, they're calling 999 because for all they know, they could be having a heart attack or anything, mm. um, which is completely fair enough. And we get there, and a lot of the time, um, we don't convey them to hospital. We just have to sit them down and calm them down, explain to them situations, maybe do some social service referrals, but nothing really 999 emergency, if that makes mm. sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, the opposite, due to obviously the pandemic, a lot of people are um, sort of relating the pandemic, especially to us and to A&E and obviously mm-hmm. wanting to avoid that at all costs. So people who are actually really, really poorly and need our help are avoiding calling 999, um, meaning that we get there when they are absolutely desperate for it and in such a worse state. Um, so the example you were talking about is I mentioned, I think, stroke guy. Um, mm. We had a guy who was showing completely obvious stroke symptoms. He um, apparently the night before went for a sip of water and just it threw over his shoulder and he had a really lopsided face, slurred speech, common sort of stuff. And mm. they just didn't call an, an ambulance or anything. They didn't even call 111. Um, and obviously throughout the night, that poor person did unfortunately deteriorate. And we were called finally in the morning. We got mm-hmm. there and he was completely unconscious. He was fitting on and off. He was he was really poorly. And the thing which um, is the worst part is with strokes, there is a four-hour sort of window mm. which can make it reversible. If you yeah. have stroke symptoms and we get them to hospital and treat him straight away, we can reverse it. But because it was left so long, he I don't know how he is now, but I can't imagine he, he's in a good way anymore, mm. to be fair. Mm. So what, what um, information can we give to people in terms of, is it a case of people educating themselves a bit more in terms of panic attack symptoms, symptoms of things that are serious as well? And, you know, if you're yeah. showing signs of strokes, just still oh, dial that number. <laughs> yeah. 100%, yeah. Um, another good thing is if um, you're not sure if you need an ambulance, if you think it might be a panic attack, but you're not sure to maybe call 111, and they'll yeah. be able to advise you further instead of straight away sort of getting an ambulance. Because if you call us and you're saying you've got chest pain, you'll be getting an ambulance 100%. There's no way we won't attend to you. Yeah, yeah. I guess for the individual, it's been strong enough. Like if they've read up about symptoms of panic attacks, but then you're feeling those symptoms for the first time, it must be difficult. Yeah, yeah. Um, and overwhelming. They, are, they can be extremely scary, 100%. percent mm. Yeah. yeah, it's um, uh, it's tricky. It's tricky, isn't it? It is. Um, yeah, it is very tricky. It's a, it's a sticky situation in both mm-hmm. senses. I do see why people sort of avoid A and E, but there's really no need to in any sense. It is completely like hygienic. It's safe. We've literally got at every hospital two different sections of A and E now. They're split in half. One for like coronavirus patients or possible coronavirus patients and the other is anyone who definitely doesn't have it so if you don't have coronavirus and you need to go to A&E you know you will be safe and you will be separated from the people who do potentially have it mm. um, I think that's quite an important thing to yeah. get out there because so many people and people are avoiding calling an ambulance when they do need to mm. 
I'm really glad you brought that up again because I I didn't know that mm. before we yeah. spoke, and I think that's such an important psychological thing for people to know um, that that that's in place. So um, that's really good to bring that up here. Um, yeah, it's exactly the same with ambulances as well. Whenever we go to a patient who even shows the slightest sign of coronavirus, we have to go back to station after each job and thoroughly deep clean the ambulances, change our uniform. It's not like we go from coronavirus patient to a little kid to another coronavirus patient and don't do anything yeah. in between. We are yeah. really on, on it in the ambulance. So I think that's a wrap. Um, all I want to say is thank you, everyone, for this epic, epic session. <laughs> Well, thanks this for inviting us. Yeah. It was a lot of fun. Thank you so much. Yeah, very was... welcome. You're very welcome. Thanks for everyone at home who's tuned in and written questions as we go along. That's really helped give it an extra edge as well. So thank you, everybody. Keep on taking care of yourselves. And uh, we look forward to seeing you all again soon. Thanks, guys. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Ciao. Bye. Bye. Our thanks go out to Nick, Cyrus, Ashley, Chris, Stathis and Sophie for helping us to produce the event and providing us with a thought-provoking array of insights. Don't forget, you can explore more podcast episodes, written articles and peruse through our online gallery of bold visual art at statementart.co.uk. Best wishes and speak soon.